0: Hi everyone, Kathy here. Just wanted to start out with a little warning to say that we use some adult words in this episode, but they're all in an academic way. Thanks. Johnson, and I'm a cartoonist, scholar, and educator.
1: And my name is E. Jackson, and I'm a cartoonist and scholar.
0: On Drawing a Dialogue, we put comics into historical and educational contexts. Uh, This is going to be episode nine. Um, It is going to be about censorship and learning levels and like reading development in children. Yeah. So we sort of wanted to have a little bit of a longer intro um, just to sort of talk about how we arrived at this subject. I brought it to E um because I have a lot of people approach me um to talk about what is appropriate for teenagers to read, what is appropriate for middle grade students and younger students, and what is appropriate for adults to read. Um When it comes to comics and graphic novels, I feel like it's a conversation that comes up a lot in art and publishing, Um, and so I thought I could uh, talk about it from, you know, the educational point of view.
1: Right. Um, And I, um, what I really didn't want to do was go through, like, I guess, uh, what would be I don't like saying the most obvious, but kind of the most obvious, which would be uh, like a history of banned books or like a history of um, if if you do like any research into censorship, obviously uh, what primarily you get is sort of like a list of examples of uh, sort of like state-sponsored or like uh, institutional-sponsored um, censorship ca- things that have happened. Um, And I was I am always like more interested in, I guess, the like societal forces uh, behind that sort of thing.
0: Yeah. And I think what's interesting is that it's like your instinct is to go in sort of the broader.
1: Yeah. And then my
0: (laughs) instinct is to go really, really pinpoint specific because I think that's what education is. It's like you're trying to understand a, a specific student and their specific needs. Right. Um, that's, what I t- that's what I always am been referring to When I talk about student-centered work Is right, like right. actually Specificity <laughs> So it's an interesting balance that we have e.
1: Yeah, yeah And it is like, um, I think it's uh, Why we work well together <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But I-, I guess I'll like sort of Go through my processes that I-, I Originally like what I was most interested In sort of exploring when we first talked About this was obscenity So what
0: is obscenity?
1: Well, (laughs) um, obscenity is something that gets defined and sort of redefined throughout history. Um, The the legal definition of obscenity that we use in the United States currently was established in 1973. Um, But like throughout history, there have been.
0: So what you're talking about is like a legal thing, not like because like obscenity is just a word too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I know, I know.
1: <laughs> but that's why that's why um this is like an interesting topic because there is like an interplay between just on a societal or like day-to-day basis versus like state created or like institutional uh instances of it of um, censorship. Yeah. What I was interested in with regards to obscenity was that like vagueness that makes it where it's a very subjective thing because it's like a very hard thing to define um as there is sort of like a shared societal idea and you can like if you disagree but i feel like there's sort of a shared societal idea that when we think about obscenity we tend to think about sexual like things that are sexual um
0: north american because we are both yeah i'm talking about american yeah
1: yeah 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 just that was sort of like where I started from, I guess, was chasing this idea of like how we deal with obscenity and like how that re- it like comes up in discussions of censorship. Cool.
0: So where I wanted to start is sort of to recognize how censorship is very specific and very personal. Just like what mm-hmm. you were saying is like um, when you first start thinking about it, usually what you get is a list of banned books and a list of locations. Because the way that censorship really does manifest is it manifests in very specific moments in time with real people, right? Mm-hmm. I think it's easy to think of it's easy to think of it as uh, contextless, basically. Um, but I feel like to understand it is to really is to look at the specifics um, because it humanizes it. Mm-hmm. Um, because censorship is so human, yeah, and subjective um yeah so this first article that i have titled a book is not a house the human side of censorship by robert cormier cormier is the author of books like i am the cheese after the first death we all fall down and the chocolate war to sort of introduce him as an author i i just like pulled from wikipedia the wikipedia entry for the chocolate war um so here's a quote from wikipedia uh Set at a fictional Catholic high school, the story depicts a secret student's organization's manipulation of the student body, which descends into cruel and ugly mob mentality against a lone, non-conforming student. Because of the novel's language, the concept of a high school secret society using intimidation to enforce the cultural norms of the school and the various characters' sexual ponderings It has been embroiled in censorship controversies and appeared as third in the American Library Association's list of the top 100 banned books, challenged books from 2000 to 2009. So in this article, A Book is Not His House, um, the Cormier talks about a student, a specific student who was forced to sit in a library uh, while the rest of her class was discussing the chocolate war. Um, And it's because her parents had protested the use of the novel in the classroom. Mm. Uh, his point is sort of to address how this student was ostracized from the rest of her classmates so here's a quote it struck me then as it strikes me now that in a tender time of blossoming adolescence when a teenager wants to belong to be part of the crowd part of something this girl sat alone in the library sentenced there by her parents i wonder which is more harmful her isolation or reading the novel So Cormier also discusses how teachers may have a hard time challenging parents or administration to defend their lesson plan choices Mm -hmm. um, because it puts their job at risk. So here's the specific part I was talking about. So um, censorship is local, which means that it's personal. Affecting individuals before it has taken up its cause by groups and organizations becomes the subject of headlines and talk shows and newscasts. The human aspects are heart wrenching because they have affected people who are particularly vulnerable. Here's a list of these people. Parents agonizing over children who face an increasingly hostile and threatening world. Parents who sincerely believe that they are protecting their children when they keep them from reading certain books. Young people besieged almost daily by invitations that are beguiling and intimidating and possibly destructive all at the same time. And another person on this list is teachers who attempt t- to lead their students through a cluttered hallway of knowledge and are often straight by people who have never entered a classroom and face 20 or 30 restless inquiring and sometimes bored young minds. Mm. So he sort of ends with the idea that authors already censor their own work while they're writing. He talks about how the Chocolate War originally had a paragraph that talked about masturbation. Um, but his teenage daughter asked to read the book. So he actually removed the uh, the paragraph about masturbation before he let her read it, and then he put it back in to submit to a publisher mm-hmm. and then the publisher sat with him and had a discussion with him about it, and he realized he was willing to let other people's children read this paragraph, but he wasn't re- allow allowing his own child to read it. um so in the end, he decided to edit it so this example was to basically say that authors are already thinking about what is included in their book or not right um but that's sort of beside the point i just sort of wanted to start out with just talking about how censorship has a very real and human level but it's easy to forget that part because it gets sensationalized
1: no i think that's i like that uh a lot because i think that is like a very nice um Like the human side, like you said, um, what I'm going to talk about is going to be very like academic analysis. And the issue with academic analysis sometimes is that it can get overly invested in theory at the expense of the lived lives of real people. Um, so I like having that balance, uh, because it does echo what I have prepared. Cool. Do you want to
0: start your segment then? Yeah. That concludes our introduction.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, I think that's great. Um, So like I said, I started from a place of um, sort of like examining obscenity and how obscenity has been categorized and regulated throughout uh, North American and to a degree European history. But what I'm actually going to start us off with here is um, a return to our good friend uh, Foucault. Uh, who I talked about, I talked about discipline and punish in episode five, our episode, our first episode on the gays. Um, in that episode, I talked about, uh, his writing discipline and punish and his theory of the panopticon, which self-regulates institutions through this idea that we're always being watched essentially like we're self-monitoring. So now what I'm talking, another writing of his that I'm talking about today is, um, the history of sexuality which was originally published in 1984, where Foucault essentially proposes that the culture of repression rises alongside capitalism, creating the idea of the imperial prude Um By placing the advent of the age of repression in the 17th century after hundreds of years of open spaces and free expression, one adjusts it to coincide with the development of capitalism. It becomes an integral part of the bourgeoisie order. The effect of all this rational discourse about sex was the increasing encroachment of state law into the realm of private desire. One had to speak of sex as a thing to be not simply condemned or tolerated, but managed, inserted into systems of utility, regulated for the greater good of all, Made the function according to an optimum. Sex was not something one simply judged, it was a thing one administered. Um, so obviously the history of sexuality he is dealing with um sexuality, sex specifically, uh, and how we regulate sex, but obviously this is uh this relates to obscenity, because like I was saying earlier, um, a lot of obscenity has to do with sex. Uh Things that are considered obscene are usually sexual in nature, whether or not they are actually pornographic, um, which I will address later. Uh. And essentially in this writing, Foucault proposes that censorship is a productive force so that uh, it wasn't just that like no one was talking about it, right? It was, everyone was talking about it. And because everyone was talking about it more than anyone has ever talked about it before we had to invent, we had to continue. Like that's where the regulation comes from. Like, so I wanted to, I wanted to kind of start with this framework of this book. Um, and you, people also look at discipline and punish as being about censorship in the form of self-censorship because, um, the, thing that, the main thing that I want to talk about, all of the, like, academic theories that this author is working with and analyzing uh, and synthesizing, basically, as she says, are informed by Foucault's writing. So the main essay I wanted to bring in today is um, Towards a Redefinition of Censorship by Helen Freshwater. I like it a lot because it uh, does a good job of, like, It synthesizes and summarizes a whole bunch of different, like, academic theories. That's helpful for me, because it means I don't have to track down every... A lot of these were things I was already reading, so it was nice to see, like, one source basically go over all of them (laughs) in one package. Of course, that's
0: that's the dream source, isn't it?
1: Yeah, exactly. The dream Um, citation. So she starts by proposing her own definition of censorship, which is... An inclusive definition that that responds to the diverse experiences of censorship and which reflects the socio historical specificity of instances of control, conditioning or silencing. This definition acknowledges that censorship is a process realized through the relationships between censorious agents rather than a series of actions carried out by a discrete or isolated authority. So that's an interesting definition because it relates to like what you said about how it's so like censorship is such a specific thing but also acknowledges is that um there is like a broader relationship it, it, it's like we think like censorship we think of as like these individual acts these like within like the same continuum but like these individual acts that are like enacted on a person and not within like a broader societal spectrum
0: well i have a question mm-hmm. is she talking about censorship that we do of each other as if as the panopticon is saying in which we are watching each other and um or is she only talking about like cuz I'm talking about media?
1: She she's talking about everything. So that is Okay,
0: so she's also talking about like human beings and their behavior.
1: So she starts off for instance by talking uh like going over the traditional so contemporary analysis of censorship, uh, which usually uh, contrasts contemporary definitions of censorship with traditional models. And the traditional model of censorship focuses upon the external silencing of a resistant subject's speech or expression, which is understood to be free or hitherto uncensored. So you're
0: talking about free speech?
1: Yeah. Part. Yeah. Okay. Within this model, censorious intervention is generally assumed to take place after the act of expression. Okay. So that's like when you think of like, a book being banned or an art piece being taken down. Right. And so there's like a whole bunch of different writings about this. For instance, Annette Cunn in cinema censorship and sexuality, uh, her 1988 book argues that censorship is a process, not an object. Um, So these again, are academics who are responding to this traditional mode of censorship by saying that this is not the only thing, like this is not all that censorship is. So it's not just, regulative right it's not just this intervention that takes place after something it's something that can happen at any stage in the creation of something um
0: right like i was just saying with cormier and um the as an author he's censoring himself while he's writing the book but also there could be like regulatory bodies like the comics code authority
1: yeah exactly Um, So Sue Curry Jansen in Censorship, The Knot That Binds Knowledge and Power in 1991, in that book, she draws attention to the power of constitutive as opposed to regulative censorship, citing the significance of the taboos and mores of the community and the underlying construction of psychic and social forces. Um, She proposes that we analyze the implicit structures of censorship rather than the more obvious operations of communicational and cultural control, which criticism has tended to focus on. Done in the past, so constitutive censorship, as opposed to regulative censorship Pro- this model of censorship proposes that we move past the idea of an either or model of censorship, which is like regulative, so either something is censored or it's not, because that creates an assumption that censorship cannot go unnoticed. so uh, Jansen and other academics like uh, Michael Holquist and basically present the idea that censorship is something that Just is (laughs) Michael Holquist literally says censorship is he defines it as omnipresent and inevitable, um, which is a bit glum. But like this idea, again, that it's not just something that happens after the fact, it's something that can happen at any level in the creation of something, whether internally within Uh, a person like within a creator um, or externally via like not having access to things or not ever getting to the stage where you're published or, you know what I mean? Like there's like all these different, Uh different, different, this like whole spectrum. As I said, all of these treatments of censorship are informed by, or at least this is what Helen Freshwater says is that all of these treatments that I've been talking about are informed by Foucault's writings on power and censorship. Her take on that is this, excessive interest produced areas of knowledge around this focus of cultural anxiety rather than its exclu- excision from the discursive agenda. This results in a reconfiguration of censorship as a productive force. Like I said, which is what Foucault was saying, which constitutes the discourse surrounding sexuality, just as it defines its boundaries. Um, and that the panopticon itself is a blueprint for the rise of self censorship. So this idea that like censorship almost becomes a necessary quote unquote, part of our construction of knowledge It's constitutive. It's like built into the foundation. I like the way that Pierre Bourdieu in Language and Symbolic Power, uh, published in French in 1982, proposes that censorship um, exercised by the structure of the field determines the form, and that as these prohibitions take root, the need for explicit prohibitions lessen. Thus, censorship's success is indicated by its apparent abolition. Mm. So like as we hit a point in our discourse where things become unacceptable to say that that is like technically a form of censorship, but because it's invisible, we don't see it as censorship. And we just think that it's like no more censorship. Yay. Which I think is like an interesting idea and she says about this idea of it being constitutive it not only undermines the cherished liberal idea of free speech but simultaneously presents us with a theory that is difficult if not impossible to evidence if censorship is constitutive operating at the most basic level of discourse and comprehensive comprehension how are we to assess it which like i said like it's like the hard thing about researching this is that you end up with just like a laundry list of instances of censorship and that's obviously useful and important but isn't looking at sort of, like, the broader understanding of, like, why this is happening, you know, or, like, how this is happening.
0: It seems to me what you're actually talking about is the opposite, right? So, like, the censorship of things that don't even be- get to the, op- the option of existing.
1: That's, like, yeah, that's part of it. Um, you see that, I think, in, like, issues of representation, right? Like, the absences of certain types of people in stories, historically. I Mm -hmm. I think would be an example of that sort of, like, invisible censorship where we don't see it as a form of censorship because it's just the way things are, right?
0: Yeah, because, like, I mean, the idea of art is to um, reflect society, but there's plenty of people and plenty of experiences that don't get reflected in art, and we know that. Like, it's well known.
1: Yeah, (laughs) yeah.
0: I mean, all actors are extremely beautiful and like yeah <laughs> there's like so many there's so many ways that um like our pop culture is uh, quite the facade of who we are supposed to be
1: right exactly so she goes on to point out that and I don't want to dwell on this but just I think it's uh interesting to note uh that censorship is also a structural necessity in psychoanalysis uh in the form of self-censorship and repression which we have touched on psychoanalysis before and like that is a big part of it is like repressing and self-censoring. She she goes on to say, um, this is like after she's talked about psychoanalysis and also all these other theories, um, the essentializing language of psychoanalysis may often seem to empty censorship of its socio-historical specificity, just like Foucaultian focus on the complicitous subject to keep in mind. Like another thing that's like worth looking at when we talk about like the history of censorship and stuff is that like the paradigms are always changing of like what we would consider of repression or like what things are not allowed to be talked about
0: because i mean like if you if you're talking about foucault and the idea that we are self-censoring mm-hmm. it's not like we are pure beings outside of the media
1: oh of course
0: yeah it's not like we're having pure experiences without censorship um. yeah it's
1: inter it is like it's complicated and i think it all sort of exists on like a continuum of like
0: yeah, it seems like a like very wobbly because it's not like we. It, it feels like we all go back and forth a lot more. It's not like it's just a singular direction. It's not yeah. Li- non-linear.
1: Yeah, totally. And um, the thing about Foucault that was like challenging, I guess, uh, at the time was that he basically forced us to confront the possibility that we're complicit in the maintenance of these institutions of censorship. Yeah. Right. Like that was what was like difficult. But I like the way uh, Freshwater kind of concludes by saying um, conclusions about censorship should surely be provisional rather than fixed, plural rather than singular, time and site specific rather than universal. Of course, responsiveness to the charges of censorship should not obstruct individual. Investigation to the possible presence of complicitive relationships between censored individuals and censorious institutions, as Judith Butler proposes, it seems more appropriate to view censorship as a continuum upon which it is possible to place the brutal extremes of incarceration and murder at one end, and the shadowy operations of constitutive exclusion at the other. Their connection is thus established without negating their differences. Um, so it is. It's just that there's not a universal experience of this because it is so bound up in like social mores it's so bound up in cu- like cultural things it's so bound up in personal experiences
0: I mean I th- we are purposely not talking about the goodness or the badness of censorship right Yeah because I think it sort of starts to get into dangerous territory It
1: is I think interesting that like um you can't <laughs> I think that's why I like things that move away from the either or like either something censorship or it's not model, because there is an inherent value judgment in there, like an assumption of value of like, if you say like, oh, this is censorship, you're saying it's bad because we have this like understanding of censorship as something that's inherently bad. Um, Mm
0: I mean, I mean, so what you're saying, I mean, obviously, there is no binary, the binary thinking just destroys societies and cultures yeah so I agree with that
1: what I was thinking about specifically was like if a publisher decides to pull a book after an author says something morally reprehensible and we get into an argument like is this censorship and the answer is like no because the publisher has the right to do that um but because you have cha- put the conversation onto like, is this censorship? Yes, no, that like I don't think that should be the question in the first place. You know what I mean? Like I, if we start from a place of like, sure, we can say this is a form of censorship, but it's not bad or like it's more complex than just a value. You know what I mean? Like, I think we get put in this, our, ourselves into this weird situation where we can't ever admit something might be censorious because that means it's the wrong decision. And maybe it's not like does that make sense Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely that's so that's sort of like where i kind of feel about like that sort of thing where it's like i think there are instances of people like who have been censored or whatever but i think it's because it was the right decision to make because you have to it's like the paradox of tolerance right where you can't tolerate intolerance Helen freshwater defines it as like both slash and as opposed to either slash or or like instead of like either this is censored or it's not it's everything is censored to a degree, but, like, let's have a conversation about the actual value judgment of that. Okay. Cool. (laughs) Sort of pivoting, I guess, away from that, I wanted to also talk about... So I've been talking broadly about, like, different theories about different forms of censorship, whether regulative, as in, like, institutional or constitutive or, um, self or media. Um... So I want to sort of pivot from that into talking about um, sort of my starting points again. So obscenity, um, right, was like where I started and what had actually originally came up for me, like immediately what I was thinking about when Kathy first pitched this to me was the Comstock Act Mm. and like sort of like the relationship between obscenity laws in the U.S. and the arts and queer culture and queer community. So what's the Comstock Law? Sure. Sure. So the Comstock Laws, the Comstock Act, um, passed in 1873 uh, in the United States. Um, It was a federal statute that criminalized publication, distribution, and possession of information of obscene materials. Primarily, the focus was on birth control and abortions. Specifically, it said unlawful abortions. At the time, all abortions were unlawful. That loophole does get exploited, actually, uh, in more recent history. So this basically was an act that you could be jailed or fined for distributing obscene materials, and that included private mail. There is a long history in this country of people being arrested because of the things they were mailing. So this is an interview on Vox with um, David Johnson, who is the author of The Lavender Scare, The Cold War Persecution of Gays and Lesbians in the Federal Government specifically about the post office pass with uh, homophobias. It, this was uh, when they announced in 20, this is from 2014. And it was when the post office announced that it was commemorating Harvey milk with a s- stamp. Mm. So the Comstock act, uh, like I said, uh, forbid mailing obscene materials and the post office actually, this is from the interview. Um, the post office actually had the oldest federal law enforcement unit in existence long before there was an FBI. So under the Comstock Act, they investigated obscenity through the mail. The post office, like, uh, federal law enforcement office, primarily focused on fraud and theft originally before the Comstock Act. And the Comstock Act, which it was sort of in, like, the 50s and 60s when we started, there was, like, a lot of very public cases involving the Comstock Act. So, for instance, um... In January 1953, um, one published One Magazine, which was the first publicly available uh, pro homosexuality periodical in the United States. In October cool. of 1954, the post office declared it obscene and unmailable they mm. sued and in 1958 the supreme court ruled that gay and lesbian publications are not a prior obscene and could be mailed legally but that was 1958 mm. right like the comstock uh, act had been in existence at that point for well, 85 years so, <laughs> so um it primarily like i said it was primarily targeting medical information about abortions and birth control but it was also used to criminalize correspondence. Uh, that was gay, basically, like queer, gay, lesbian, transgender correspondence.
0: Yeah, I'm thinking that actually sort of corresponds with when the pill was invented. Mm-hmm. Yep, 1957 is when the FDA approved birth control pills.
1: Mm-hmm. So the of the Comstock Act actually endured as law of the land into the 1990s. So it got stripped down in various ways. So in 1971, Congress removed the language concerning... This is from... The Encyclopedia Britannica. Uh, In 1971, Congress removed the language concerning contraception, and federal courts, until Roe v. Wade, ruled that it only applied to, quote-unquote, unlawful abortions. Because when it was... The language was unlawful abortions, but that was back when all abortions were unlawful. So... That was sort of the loophole that people took advantage of after Roe laws, criminalizing transportation of information about abortion remained on the books. And although they have not been enforced, they have been expanded to ban distribution of abortion related information on the internet. Um, And then in representative Barney Frank of Massachusetts introduced legislation in 1997 to repeal abortion related elements of federal obscenity law rooted in the Comstock act. So federal obscenity law is Mm -hmm. there's a lot, (laughs) there's a lot of different laws and states have their own laws and it varies. And so I'm not going to like go over all of it, but essentially the Comstock Act informed a whole bunch of different obscenity laws. Okay. Um, The first legal definition of obscenity comes from Roth versus the United States in 1957. And that is obscenity depends on whether to the average person Applying contemporary community standards, the dominant theme of the material taken as a whole appears to the prurient interests. Um, Roth also used as a measure for obscenity the fact that material is utterly without redeeming social value. So to be obscene, it had to have no value to society, according to whoever's Mm -hmm. defining it. And the, the, the dominant theme has to appeal to prurient interests and prurient means having or encouraging an excessive interest in sexual matters so like i said sexuality was like the big 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 obscenity thing the current i mentioned this in the introduction but our current legal definition of obscenity comes from a case in 1973 uh miller versus california um the miller test is three-pronged And it is whether the average person applying contemporary adult community standards, again, finds that the matter taken as a whole appeals to prurient interests, i.e. an erotic, lavicious, abnormal, unhealthy, degrading, shameful or morbid interest in nudity, sex or excretion. Whether the average person applying contemporary adult community standards finds that the matter depicts or describes sexual conduct conduct in a patently offensive way, i.e. ultimate sexual acts, normal or perverted, actual or simulated, masturbation, excretory functions, lewd exhibition of the genitals, or sadomasochistic sexual abuse, and whether a reasonable person finds that the matter, taken as a whole lacks serious literary artistic political or scientific value any material that satisfies this three-pronged test may be found obscene so this one is you have to hit all three of these categories to be obscene
0: yeah it's interesting yeah right
1: so that's sort of where we're at with obscenity legally and um that and the arts obviously there's sort of like a long history of, like, ways we deal with obscenity in arts. Mm -hmm. Specifically, I kind of wanted to focus, I guess, on the National Endowment for the Arts, which is a federal grant funding institution. You used to, until the 1990s, be able to apply for individual grants. But, so basically there was a big controversy (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. in the 1980s surrounding the public funding of artists Uh, Such as the 1989 exhibit of uh, homoerotic photographs by Robert Maplethorpe and Andre Serrano's uh, Piss Christ Photography, which was exhibited at an art show receiving partial NEA funding. So these were works that were considered obscene by a great many people. Um, if you're unfamiliar with uh, Robert Maplethorpe's work, he did a lot of portraiture that explored like gay male sexuality and like sadomasochism and things like that. So throughout the 1980s, there's all this like controversy between um, the NEA and like the American Family Association and various right wing evangelical Christian groups, essentially, um, about whether or not it's OK to spend tax dollars art that, they con- that is, can be considered offensive or obscene, essentially. Right. These issues came to a head in 1990 when, after Congress amended the statute instructing the NEA on what criteria to use in awarding federal arts grants, the NEA rejected the grants of several artists based on the new requirement that the NEA consider general standards of decency and respect for the diverse beliefs and values of the American public, in addition to the previous criteria of... Artistic Excellence and Merit, the artist that got rejected, by the way, uh, because of the New criteria, it's, uh, would go on to be known as the NEA4. They were a group of four performance artists. Oh. The NEA4, let me give you their names. They are Karen Finley, Tim Miller, John Fleck, and Holly Hughes. The thing about them was they were actually, they were like given the grants and then the grants were vetoed, taken away.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, how would you know if you got rejected? Yeah. How how would you know that this was censorship unless it was?
1: Yeah, <laughs> they were yeah. they were going to be given the grants and the grants were taken Depends away. Depends on the
0: direction it goes, right? Right.
1: So, but, yeah. Um. In September 1990, the Center for Constitutional Rights and Co Council filed a First Amendment lawsuit challenging the constitutionality of the decency clause. And in June 25th, 1998, the Supreme Court ruled in an 8 to 1 opinion that the 1990 Standards of Decency statute is constitutional. Um, so, as a result of all this, the NEA stopped doing individual grants for artists. I also want to note I think it's worth mentioning um, all of the, the NEA four, all of their work dealt with sexuality, and three out of four of them were openly uh, gay or lesbian. So in 1998, the Supreme Court ruled that the standards of decency uh, statute is constitutional. And as far as I can tell, it's still like a part of the um, process to apply for a grant. Um, Right. And like what they take into consideration when they give funding. I the most recent thing I could find discussing it was a university doing like a week of talks in celebration of the 20th anniversary. Interesting. Yeah. So as far as I can tell. Yeah. It, or like it's still a part of the application process, but they don't do individual grants for artists anymore.
0: Yeah. Rather than uh talking about obscenity, they just got rid of them.
1: They they it was a decision like they got uh you know, their budget gets cut every year and they just eliminated the individual grant program um completely. Right. And it was a part of this, right. definitely like related to this uh controversy. Um so Obviously, that's not the only example. Obviously, the NEA is not like the beginning and the end of arts in America or like instances of artistic censorship, uh, especially for uh, queer people or like artists uh, of like marginalized uh, experience. But I wanted to sort of talk about that, th- those like particular moments, because I think they show like examples of just like the ways we've dealt like the ways that things have been censored (laughs) broadly. Yeah. Um, and like on an individual level or like, like in the Comstock Act, which would dealt with private mail correspondence, uh, to like art pieces that were shown publicly or like people being denied grants and things like that. So
0: thank you E, for talking about censorship and fine art. Um, (laughs) I think it's interesting because unfortunately, as we know, comics sort of straddle both these worlds, right? The Mm -hmm. art world and the literary world. And so I think we are constantly having to battle going back and forth. And also, do you want to talk about how we're not talking about comic book censorship?
1: Yeah, I, it falls into a lot of categories, right? So comic books, when they are put on the banned books list, they're treated like books, like literary books, right? Um... And there have been historical instances of like book burnings for comics. I think I very briefly touched on that in the Wortham episode, the book burnings in Detroit in the thirties, but it's, it's hard to not want to talk about the broader for me, as we have established, I'm a person that likes to talk in broad strokes. And I think sometimes it's easy in comics because we are such like a weird small field to become very like laser focused on um, these instances that occur within our community on like the micro level because we have such a small community. I don't I didn't want to just talk about band books and how comics fit into that legacy. I didn't want to just talk about. Are instances of artists being censored and how comic artists also fall into that legacy because that's the thing is that we fall into all the legacies and
0: i think that actually is helpful because i also am not particularly interested in talking about comic books as censorship mm-hmm. what i wanted to talk about is sort of censorship and uh developmental levels And appropriateness for schools and for children. Right. Because, I mean, at the end of the day, that's what I care about. Because I think we could talk about self expression and like the rights of artists and all that stuff. But I think at the end, it's always there's people who, as you were saying, E, there's people whose real life experiences sharing information about birth control, sharing information about being transgender, uh, relating to people. And that's what's getting oppressed and censored. And that feels more pertinent in this context that we're creating of drawing a dialogue. And it feels more pertinent to talk about access to information mm-hmm. for students and access to being a social human being rather than the expression of a creative person.
1: Yeah, And I focused on the queer community because that's, you know, my personal experience but like on marginalized communities and comic comic creators fall into those categories you know what I mean like I want to start from the place of marginalized community and not start from the place of comic artist. (laughs) like
0: yeah and I and I agree and I think that's how I'm approaching my section so thank you for a good transition
1: yeah no problem
0: I'm gonna start on mine section it's on education um we already talked about Robert Cormier's authors and Mm self-censorship and the introduction. Um, But I sort of did want to talk about where I'm coming at with this. So where I'm coming from is as a teacher and as someone who reads books and reads graphic novels and shares them with students, I'm looking for graphic novels that include marginalized identity Mm -hmm. in positive ways And in ways that are engaging and challenging and makes the reader rethink the way that they have previously thought about certain things. And I think that's a lot of what educators are looking for when you're when we're looking for books and we're looking for art in order to share it with a class. Um, So what I wanted to do is sort of share what learning development is Mm -hmm with different age groups and different grades. What reading development is, what art aesthetic development is because we have to go back and forth because that is what comics books are and how it sort of pertains to publishing and pertains to graphic novel publishing. Right. So, here's what I wanted to start with. I sort of wanted to start with um so what are we talking about when we talk about developmental levels? So, when you're a child, you are developing there's also there's physiology there's physiological development which is the development of your body you get bigger <laughs> you you are an infant and then you're a toddler and you physiologically grow right um and then there's mental growth mental development and that's what we're talking about right so i sort of quickly wanted to talk about literacy right so the development of literacy and the development of learning mm-hmm. And so when we're talking about censorship of books and banned books in in classrooms and in school settings, there's a difference between the literacy and the way the book is presented and then the subject matter within the book. Right. And so I sort of wanted to start with the literacy myth. So from Social Linguistics and Literacies by James Paul Gee, 2012. uh, This is the fourth edition of this book. I believe I've talked about Gee before. I like him quite a bit. Mm -hmm. And he defines the literacy myth that societies with higher literacy are inherently better than those with lower literacy rates. So what he's saying is that higher order cognitive abilities – does not necessarily tie with literacy. So to read at higher levels does not necessarily indicate that you or a student can understand difficult subject matter at a higher level. However, subject matter relies a lot on its method of presentation. So that's really, really what I'm talking about here.
1: Right.
0: Sort of the way I wanted to start was like, okay, language acquisition. How are we reading? How do? And really when you're talking about a huge facet of education is how do we assess how students gain reading skills because so much of learning is a sort of a mental process right yeah and so this is why a lot of people are obsessed with quizzes and tests and all sorts of stuff because really we need to assess that students are genuinely learning something um so i got this book this textbook titled assessment for reading instruction by mckenna and stall this is the third edition of it so it focuses, this book focuses on reading acquisition for younger kids, right? So they're talking elementary. So he, they, I sort of just sort of went through their chapters. So here there's chapters, this is emergent literacy. Um, a way to assess is word recognition and spelling. Mm-hmm. Fluency um, with a language. Uh, your vocabulary. These all things probably sound familiar to you from elementary school, right? Spelling tests. yeah, Vocabulary tests. Yeah. Um, So the one that I wanted to focus on was comprehension. Okay. So in comprehension, you're measuring how well a student has comprehended the material, helps teachers assess how well the other subprocesses are working together. Right. So in order to understand a sentence, you need to have the vocabulary, understand that sentence. Right. Yeah. Uh, But comprehension is a much more ambiguous thing to assess in students. So its trickiness sort of comes from, and this is a quote, Comprehension is never all or nothing. Rather, comprehension is multidimensional with a variety of factors working together to yield understanding that ranges from a minimal recognition of the key ideas to a thoughtful, critical evaluation of the text of the generation of deductive inferences that go beyond the text. Right. So they're, they're, you can read a sentence and you can fluently say the sentence. But if you don't comprehend the ideas behind the sentence, are you really reading?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Like that's just mimicking.
0: <laughs> yeah. And let me back up a little bit. The reason that I'm talking about reading assessment is really what I'm talking about is a child and a human's ability to understand subject matter. hmm in a variety in multifaceted ways Mm -hmm. because that's sort of the key to what we're censoring yeah right yeah we're censor we're not censoring certain words we're censoring ideas we're censoring subject matter content and so in order yeah and so in order to understand why we're doing this i'm backpedaling to sort of talk about what reading is in order to understand <laughs> the comprehension behind it right, right? yeah yeah because why would you bother censoring something if a student cannot comprehend it uh a lot of children's authors talk about this mm-hmm. and a lot of people talk about this right is that books that you read in elementary or middle school if you go go back and revisit them And as an adult, you might understand things, you might see it as more violent and more sexual than when you were a kid, because certain things, you don't comprehend them. Right. Because you don't have the context for it, because you don't have the experience for it, and you're at a different developmental level. Yeah, exactly. So I just wanted to continue talking about comprehension real quickly. So there's contextual factors for comprehension. So that's sort of instructional supports, that's your teacher. Uh, Purpose for reading, genre and text structure, like the linguistics of the text Um, and then there's also individual factors for comprehension. So your ability to code, your fluency, your prior knowledge to what you're reading would help if like, you know more about a subject, you'll be able to comprehend even more as you're reading it. Uh, your interest, if like you're really invested in what you're reading, you're probably going to understand a little bit more, uh, your vocabulary, your working memory and self-regulation. Okay. So, all of this is like an in head process, and so you can't really look into a reader's mind, you can't understand what's happening and so the only way that teachers can measure if their students are comprehending something is using written or oral expression, so a student's writing or verbal abilities will constantly influence their ideas of comprehension right yeah, yeah and this is interesting because um I wanted to segue because this is literally just talking about. Communication through verbal language, through written language. But what do comics and art education do is that they talk about how the visual concept of communication. Yeah, I was going right?
1: to say, like, so not images in that case.
0: Yeah. So I do have child development art education. This is obviously sort of my forte. So this section is probably unnecessarily long. Um, <laughs> So I sort of talked about child development as it pertains to art education. Um, I looked into Victor of Lohenfeld, Creative and Mental Growth. This is the eighth edition that I was looking at. It was originally written in the 50s. It got updated in the 70s. Lohenfeld is sort of known as the guy who invented the theory that art education can be about a child's self-expression. I know that seems new or strange mm-hmm. that it was a new idea that art could be self-expression, but it was. Someone had to come up with it in the fifties, because before that, it was so much about craft. It was so much about repeating the the masters, all sorts of stuff. So Lowenfeld came up with the idea that um, art is a way for a student or a young person to express themselves.
1: That's really interesting. I didn't know that. That was like a um, recent re- re- modern yeah. concept.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wonder when was. I mean, it's very. Hippie movement, right? Yeah, so when was this proposed? (laughs) This would be the 50s, so this is about the same time that you were talking about. Yeah,
1: well, I was also going to say that's also the same time, like, that's also around the same era as modernism and sort of that, like, art for art's sake whole thing. That's really interesting.
0: Yeah, I mean, all ideas have a history. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So here's some quotes. Art is a fundamental human process. Young children use art as a means of learning through the development of concepts which take visible form, through the making of symbols which capture and are abstraction of the environment, and through the organization and positioning of these symbols together in one configuration. So what they're saying is that art is also a way in which we understand concepts, in which we can comprehend things. Right. So through an understanding of the way... This is it's an old textbook. He uses the word youngsters all the time. (laughs) (laughs) So... (laughs) understanding of the way youngsters draw in the methods they use to portray the environment we can gain insight into their behavior and development and appreciation of the complex and varied ways in which children grow and develop it. working with children in the area of art necess- necessitates both an understanding of the various developmental stages and a thorough knowledge of the possibilities for growth such awareness is necessary for the teacher to determine to what extent youngsters can comprehend and benefit from the art experience So I'm not only just talking about creating art, but I'm also talking about looking at art, visuals, right? Comprehending the visuals of art. Yeah. So he has some developmental stages. So these are, and this is a theory, okay? I mean, everything is a theory. Nothing is a fact. right? So I do want to say that this isn't necessarily true. This is a theory that he's posing. This is an education theory. Um, So what he says is that there are these developmental stages in art. That's what he believes um, the changes in the way the child perceives, represents, and operates on the world appear to emerge in a very regular and systemic way analogous to the regularity or biological language structure development. Mm-hmm. Okay? So this theory is that a child's understanding of art and their creation of art regularly follows their language structure development. Okay. Right? I don't necessarily think that's true, but I sure think it's interesting. As a comic scholar. That is... Yeah, I feel like I've... Hmm.
1: That's interesting.
0: Okay, Here, here's the stages. I got the stages for you. Okay, okay.
1: Scribbling. Right.
0: Two to four years old. Representational attempts. Four to seven years old. Achievement of the form concept. Seven to nine years old. Dawning realism. From nine to twelve reasoning and pseudo naturalistic stage from 12 to 14 year olds and then there's just adolescent art from 14 to 17
1: i guess that's which is the period of decision i mean you can just do whatever you want (laughs) i guess that is interesting i feel like that is um based on a model of like western canon that i'm not sure is actually absolutely
0: western canon Absolutely, their idea of self expression, which is sort of the non intervention of adults. Okay. Yeah. Cause- so, this is supposed to be like a pure child. They would just start with scribbling and then they start to attempt rep- representation.
1: That's interesting to me because I feel like the attempts at representation are directly the results of adult interference.
0: Like them trying to draw a house. Like, you know, it, this is the classic one. And I really. Like, a house is a square and a triangle, mm-hmm. and you can ask a six-year-old who has lived their entire life in an apartment, and they will draw a triangle
1: yeah. <laughs> house. Yeah, because that's the schema of, like, what a house is supposed to be. It's so interesting. Yeah.
0: But, cause like- but also, I just don't believe it. <laughs> um, So I wanted to go a little bit more into adolescent art, the 14- to 17-year-olds. Mm-hmm. lowenfeld says that this is... When art at the stage is a product of conscious effort. For students in high school, art has become something that they can do or leave alone. Mm -hmm. With young children, art is primarily an expression of the self done unconsciously. For a high schooler to advance, they need to have the opportunity and the desire to prove their art skills. This is interesting as a historical document, right? Yeah. This is something you and me talk about all the time, is that... In high school, teenagers, whether this is a developmental level or if this is indication of anthropology of society of culture, but teenagers, what they are saying is that teenagers make a choice whether they become make art or they no longer make art. that's the stage okay um, so one function of creative expression is an outlet for resentment against society at large or even the school environment. That one I love what's adolescent art about the resentment of society. <laughs> So here's a nice thing where he's talking about what art in high school should be. Art in high school has tended to reflect society's opinions of the adolescent. Too often, controversial subjects are considered dangerous. A teacher who encourages students to think about politics, sex, or marriage, who raises questions about the process of law, or who gets a class involved at local issues, may very well find himself looking for a new position the following year. Schools tend to isolate youngsters from the real world at a time when their energies and idealism can be best incorporated into society. The high school art program should be based upon young adults who are involved in and concerned about today's world, not a program that is oriented toward making artists. Mm, I love that. That's interesting, yeah. And then that's going again. They're taught, I mean, this is a book from the 50s, 70s. And they're talking about what they've seen in art classrooms in the high school level. Mm-hmm. And that there's censorship involved in what teenagers are allowed to be taught. Right. So one final section in which we're talking about the development of children is I found this article about child children's development in storytelling. Okay. This is developmental levels of a child's storytelling This is a study from Slovenia. So um, we are going away from North America with this one, which I think it's important to talk about that whenever that happens.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, And I'm going to butcher these names. I'm going to try my best. The study was by Umek, Kronjk, and Tekonia. Okay. So this study, the parameters of the study is there were 45 kids. They were in groups of four, six, and eight-year-olds. They were asked to read a story in a picture book and then asked to retell the story while looking just at the pictures of the book. Oh, okay.
1: Interesting.
0: <laughs> and this only assessed language and linguistics. Rather than, this study didn't take into account the images that the stories were looking at while they were telling these. Oh, no. Right? So, they, so it ignored that the children could be pulling information from the images while they are retelling the story. But they, so this is stout, study established five different developmental levels. So I just keep listing off these like different concepts that people have for development. Because mm-hmm. there isn't a fact, right? These are human brains that we're trying to put into categories. Right. It's yeah. not going to be easy or clear. Um, but they, so they have five different developmental levels for children in storytelling.
1: Okay.
0: So the first level, a story without structure. Second level, a story with a structure and simple descriptions of the illustrations. Third, a story with a structure and simple temporal action sequences. Four, a story with a structure and descriptions of the characters' thoughts, emotions, or the relations among them. So four is interesting because it's actually talking about, like, human relationships. Right. Right. yeah. yeah. Which is interesting because that's sort of focusing on, like, emotional social development. Mm-hmm. And then the fifth... Developmental structure level, the highest level is a story with a structure and causal goal based sequence of events. Hmm. So cause and effect, which is interesting because that is as I am a teacher and I've I've, I've taught K through 16, so I, I've experienced students of many, many different ages. and cause and effect is something that you, comes later. In my experience, right? So understanding if you do something, there's an effect later on for it.
1: Yeah, I mean, that makes sense because isn't that related to, like, decision making and understanding of like that sort of thing? Yeah.
0: So this list is interesting. Um, I strongly disagree with it because I think the study has a large flaw. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And that it ignores that illustration can have information. Right. (laughs) Within them. Yeah, yeah. And how students are looking at them and understanding the images and their visual literacy behind that. But I think it's interesting to start talking about child development as it pertains to storytelling. Yeah, totally. So why we're here is trying to understand the appropriateness of talking about certain things
1: mm-hmm.
0: or giving certain books right. to kids at different levels. So this next section I called, how are difficult ideas, in quotations, made easier for children? Like, how is this possible? right. So how are difficult ideas made easier for children? Right. And in my classroom, um, I sort of believe in that art is a way to do this. Um, You can invite conversation through visual means. And so, like, they can ease into the verbal understanding, which eases understanding. I mean, that's just a theory I have. Okay. So why? Why do we need to have difficult conversations in classrooms full of students, right? What is education for? Okay. Okay. So James Baldwin, this is something he presented, but he later published it. It's called A Talk to Teachers. Okay. So Clint Smith is a current PhD candidate from Harvard Uh in education, I believe. He summarized the context in which James Baldwin gave this speech. So it was delivered to a group of educators in October 1963. It was published in the Saturday Review the following December. In 1963, Medgar Evers... A leading civil rights figure and NAACP state field director was murdered in his driveway by a white supremacist in Jackson, Mississippi. That year, four young girls, Addie Mae Collins, Denise McNair, Carol Robertson, and Cynthia Wesley, were killed when Klansmen bombed the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Mm. That year, President John F. Kennedy was assassinated as he rode his motorcade through downtown Dallas. So what James Baldwin is talking about in a talk to teachers is that there's a responsibility of citizens of a country when the country is in, quote, desperately menaced from within. It's especially the responsibility of teachers who deal with the hearts and minds of young people. Mm -hmm. So to quote, the crucial paradox which confronts us here is that the whole process of education occurs within a social framework and is designed to perpetuate the aims of society. What societies really, ideally want is a citizenry which will simply obey the rules of society. Mm. So what he's saying is that there's an obligation of the responsible teachers to change and fight society. Okay. So what he's saying is that there's sort of a cognitive dissonance between what marginalized people, and he's specifically talking about black people, Mm -hmm. what they are being taught about equality of America in the classroom and then being treated so differently in society. Right. So what he's saying is that racism enters the child's consciousness much sooner than we adults would like to think it does. Yeah. As adults, we are easily fooled because we are so anxious to be fooled. But children are very different. Children not yet aware that it is dangerous to look too deeply at anything, look at everything, they look at each other, and they draw their own conclusions. Right. They have, they just don't have the vocabulary to express what they see. Right, right. And it isn't long. In fact, it begins he, when he is in school before he discovers the shape of his oppression. So it's interesting. I did want to say he actually, uh, James Baldwin, actually does mention comics, 1963 comics in this piece. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He says, I would suggest to my black students that the popular culture, as res- represented, for example, on television and in comic books and in movies, is based on fantasies created by very ill people. And he must be aware that these are fantasies that have nothing to do with reality. <laughs> Which is a lot like what you were talking about. Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, that's, good. that's a good quote.
0: So, Clint Smith wrote a follow-up September 23rd, 2017. So that's this year at the beginning of the school year. Clint Smith wrote a follow-up titled James Baldwin's Lesson for Teachers in a Time of Turmoil. It's published in the New Yorker. Okay. So Smith is talking at the beginning of the school year and about how to address that summer's, this past summer's political turmoil in the classroom, specifically the white supremacist and neo-Nazi marches that took place in Charlottesville and the death of counter-protester Heather Heyer and the Trump administration rescinding the DACA program, which puts a lot of people in in students in classrooms and their families in trouble. So how do you incorporate contentious issues into lessons? So in this piece, Smith talks about how he was trying to teach in an English classroom, specifically just teaching grammar, grammar structure, in 2012 after the killing of Trayvon Martin. Students had stared blankly at him through the lesson, and he wondered how, how occupied their minds were on the outside world. To quote, but on that day, like most days, I stuck to the book keeping politics on the periphery. So, Clint Smith sort of partly blames Common Core. Um, so, my decision based on Maryland's educational standards. The state had recently adopted Common Core and the PARC, which is the Partnership for Assessment of Readiness for College and Careers Assessments. There was little incentive to teach beyond the bounds of the new curriculum. So, he summarizes a point that Baldwin makes, which is that young people are constantly absorbing. Mm-hmm. Through media, textbooks, and policy, the myths of American exceptionalism for black children, this means that they are taught in class does not match the world in which they navigate daily. A more honest reckoning with history is necessary that Mm -hmm. Baldwin insists on. So Smith sort of concludes after reading a talk to teachers, I altered my approach placing less emphasis on the standardized tests and using literature to help my students examine their world. I realized that rigorous lessons were not mutually exclusive from culturally and politically relevant ones. So that's a little bit about why we need to be talking a little bit more. Yeah. But how do we scaffold these ideas, right, Mm -hmm. with younger children? So Clint Smith did a WBUR interview with Here and Now. Uh, where he just talked about this New Yorker piece that he did. And he talks about how he wanted to make teaching relevant politically. Where in the past, you want to create a apolitical space in the classroom. But choosing not to discuss certain things is in itself a political decision, like E was just talking yeah. about. Choosing not to say anything is a type of political censorship of a denial of something that is happening in the world. Yeah. Uh, and children are impacted by politics every day. So teachers need to create a space in order to have conversations in a meaningful way. So how do you create this in a divisive climate? And so he talks about what critical pedagogy is, is not the teacher indoctrinating students with their belief, but it's creating a space for students to create their own critical consciousness and engagement with the world. So understanding historically how we arrived somewhere and what this means. And this also demands a nuanced understanding of of oppression and intersectionality, right? In order to guide these conversations in the classroom. So how do you have a conversation about race with young children? And Clint Smith sort of talks about how we have had this done. We've done this a long time in regards to the environment. So you don't tell a second grader that Indonesia is going to be engulfed by water due to climate change. So what you can say to a second grader in regards to the environment is that you talk about recycling, turning the lights off, and then you scaffold that conversation to be appropriate to that child as they grow up Mm. so that they can understand climate change and understand why certain things are important in regards to the environment.
1: Right, so building a foundation.
0: Building a foundation. So similarly, you wouldn't tell a second grader that white supremacy is an ingrained facet of the United States, right? Mm -hmm. Which is true. But what you can say is you can have a conversation that pushes back against the idea of Mm colorblindness. This is quoting Smith. Making sure young people grow up understanding that race has very real and different implications for different people, and we shouldn't pretend it as if it doesn't exist, but we should appreciate every person for who they are and the different facets of their identity. So that's sort of introducing the idea of development and the idea of scaffolding, quote-unquote, difficult topics controversial topics, Mm -hmm. it's so subjective, right? It is, yeah. Scaffolding these ideas to be appropriate for children of different ages, Mm -hmm. right? So how does this pertain to publishing? How does this specifically pertain to the publishing of graphic novels? Yeah. (laughs) So for publishing, they have target audiences, right, Mm -hmm. for books. So I pulled this from the first second blog. It's written by Gina Gagliano, who, um, full disclosure, First, second is one of my publishers, and Gina is a personal friend. (laughs) And she wrote this in November 2012. So what are target audiences for publishing, right? So the term refers to the best audience for a book. It is not inclusive of all audiences for the book, just the ones that the publishers feel the book is best suited for. So some target audiences that Gina talks about in these categories are adult, teen, and kids ages 7 to 12. So, for an adult book, an example that they talk about is um, one that they've published called Sailor Twain, which has a topless mermaid in it. This is one of the many reasons why the target audience for Sailor Twain is an adult. Not that a perceptive 16 or 17 year old, or even a perceptive 14 year old, isn't going to read this book about midlife creative crises and fall in love with it, but looking at the content, we feel that the ideal reader is going to be the one who has the best relationship with the situations in the book that can best deal with the sensuality of the artwork in an appropriate way. So they go on, talk about defining a teen audience. Books that are, par- deal particularly with the teenage experience, it's a quote. So when we look at this book, we say the best reader for this book is going to be a teenager. Not that I don't think the book is super awesome, not that an 11-year-old wouldn't be able or eager to read it, and not that I that I and an 11-year-old shouldn't read it, mm-hmm. but the reader that's going to get the most out of this book is someone who's currently experiencing the same things as the book's characters. So it really, when you start to get into YA, it really has to do with the age of the protagonist. Yeah. So, kids ages 7 to 10. Kids are the trickier age group of people to establish target audiences with. To quote, even ages closer together and then two and 12 are marked by huge gaps in reading comprehension. I like that she talks about reading comprehension. Probably when you were five, you were reading The Very Hungry Caterpillar, a heavily illustrated minimal text picture book. Mm -hmm. But when you were seven, you're reading Amelia Bedelia, an early chapter book with very large font and lots of illustration that was maybe 60 pages long. Right. And then at 10, you're reading Goosebumps, a middle-grade novel with no illustrations, maybe 100 pages long in regular-sized font. So essentially what she's saying is that children develop very quickly. Um, so to keep quoting Gagliano. So when we're trying to figure out who the target audience for a book with protagonists younger than high school, right? So for YA, it's very much teen protagonist. It is for teens. But when, you're, when you have a book with protagonists that are younger than high school, here are some questions that the publishers ask themselves. Is this book for kids to start reading on their own? Are the characters are in a specific school grade or said to be in a specific age in the story? Is there a book kids are going to be able to read only with their parents' help? So you see, this is sort of how they determine the age of the reader. Right. right? And then they examine the content carefully. So then, that, then they're not saying something like, this book, in which the mother is depicted dying a terrible, painful death of cancer, is perfect for you, a three-year-old. <laughs> I mean, that's a joke, but it's sort of like, content does matter, mm-hmm. and not only content matters, but the delivery of that content.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely.
0: So also, so Age of the Protagonist, Scary Situations... And also probably the vocabulary and amount of panels per page is going to be difficult for some someone to really parse out until they're out of kindergarten and about in third grade. Mm. I love this line.
1: That's really interesting. It's super
0: interesting because it's like, the so the key of is um, a very specific thing to comic books and visual and verbal literacy. Right. Gagliano is saying, to be able to handle multiple panels per page, you need to be about in third grade. I love that. <laughs> so interesting that is really
1: interesting (laughs) i wonder like because i know there aren't as many there's a lot of studies in like japan on like visual literacy with manga but i don't think there's that many for like american audiences right like there's not
0: i mean here's the thing that that's interesting is that i mean were we to have one Mm -hmm. it should have been in when at the height of comic book route oh yeah the thing with Japan is that they have such comic books is so much more of a media of a popular medium. It's getting less niche now for sure. Mm-hmm. like there's so much graphic novels being published for children. Yeah, yeah, that I think we actually finally have an audience in which researchers could be doing research on stuff like that, but it really has only been since the 2000s, yeah, in North America. So another thing is she's saying that if this book doesn't really have complicated issues that requires a reader to be older, then it can be about 7 to 12. Mm. Of course, kids' reading skills and developmental levels are going to vary pretty widely across the very broad category of kids in the U.S., Canada, and the U.K. So of course, some younger kids and some older kids are going to be able to read this book and enjoy it, but 7 to 10 is our best guess at the audience by standard reading levels in the U.S.'s education system. I like that because it is saying, like, this is the society, this is the context, this is North American context, and that is also where the ages are coming from, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, what, is, what are kids getting taught in schools? Can they handle difficult subject matter? Blah, blah, blah. So why does a book need target audiences? Marketing, right? Mm-hmm. So books need to be shelved somewhere in bookstores and libraries, which are usually broken down by age. And that way, it's so the right audience can find the right books. So my sort of note is that in Barnes & Noble, more and more kids' graphic novels are being shelved in the kids' section. Oh, which it, sort of makes sense, mm-hmm. because it's been ongoing how strange that, especially in manga sections, the mix of these different age categories and genres together in the comics section.
1: Yeah, no, it's always been really hard to, like... It's kind of random.
0: <laughs> it's just every, everything of this publication medium, of this of this visual language is going to be just alphabetically. (laughs) So everything's mixed together. So this is a sort of a longer quote from Gagliano. But the target audience also influences the editorial process as well. It's a factor we think about, especially when presenting books for kids and teenagers. When we're looking at those manuscripts, we say, is this vocabulary appropriate? Is it readable by children in this age group? Are the situations and issues presented here comprehensible to kids this age? Are the issues discussed in, in a way that is accessible and relatable to the people who will be reading this book? There are issues we think about even in books for adults where sometimes the vocabulary, subjects, or math and science content needs to be scaled up or scaled down based on the comprehension level of the average adult reader. Hmm. Yeah, I like that a lot because it's sort of a continuation of... This artists and authors self-public, self-censoring. And then there's also the editorial process that also is working with creating content that is for an age-appropriate audience.
1: Yeah.
0: So, but there's there's another article that Gina wrote in August 2014 on the first-second blog. It's titled The Imprecision of Age Categories. So age categories are very small segments of the population when it comes to kids. So she's got four here. Four to eight. 7 to 10, and 10 to 14. They're meant to delineate different developmental reading levels and grade levels, and sometimes to indicate stories where sensitive topics exist that are handled in a way directed at one audience or another. I love this. Because it is talking about how seriously books, especially in... In publishing, Mm -hmm. I don't think authors or publishers shy away from talking about difficult themes in books for younger kids.
1: Yeah. It's
0: just the package in which it's delivered. And I think that's really the conclusion that I'm trying to share in this segment is that when I'm personally choosing books for teenagers or I'm choosing books for middle grades audiences Mm -hmm. or elementary audiences, it has to do with how I believe. A sensitive topic is chosen to be depicted to its audience. Right. Because an adult can handle a lot more nuance, a lot more subtlety, characters who are just making bad decisions. Right. An adult can understand something is wrong without having to be told that it's wrong.
1: And like differentiate that from like a real life. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Sort of to conclude. I just wanted to talk about some books that I utterly love. <laughs> um, the two books, are bu- they're both by this, these two authors named Corey Silverberg and Fiona Smith. Mm-hmm. The first one is What Makes a Baby, and the second one is Sex is a Funny Word. So these are books that are created and designed to be used as scaffolding tools to begin conversations about difficult subjects that kids want to know about. So they use art and books as tools for conversation. Um, So I wanted to start at the very beginning of what makes a baby. There's this introduction under the header for the grown-up reader. At some point, children become curious about babies. This usually happens when a new baby arrives in a family or is about to arrive and all the grown-ups are talking about it. But it can happen at other times, too. Children want to know where babies come from in general. They want to know specifically where they come from. These aren't the same question. They don't have the same answer. One answer articulates their unique story of their conception and birth, Mm -hmm. while the other offers the basics of how all human beings are born. Both stories are valuable. The first connects a child to their personal life history as well as their familial, cultural, and ethnic background. The second connects all children to each other, reminding us that while differences are important and shouldn't be erased, shared humanity is a pretty cool thing, too. This book helps adults tell children that second story. It doesn't include information about sexual intercourse, donor insemination, fertility treatments, surrogacy, or adoption. Right. But it creates a space for you to share as few or as many details of those as you like. Yeah, I like this book a lot. Um, and then the second one, so that one's for the, sec- for the two to six-year-olds. And then they created the same authors, Silverberg and Smith, created a, one for eight to ten-year-olds. It's called Sex is a Funny Word. It includes stuff about identity, um, it's transgender-inclusive. Um, it talks about other people' consent. It has pictures of bodies. It doesn't include any like descriptions of sex acts. It's like very age-appropriate, but it also answers a lot of questions and shares a lot of information. And that's sort of always what I'm looking for, because like, I personally don't believe that there's any topic. That is off limits for any age. But I do believe that there are certain packages and certain ways in which we can approach those topics for different kids. And We talked about, I keep referring to ages and appropriateness. And really, really, just like we talked about at the beginning, it's so personal and subjective. What a kid can understand. Everyone is so different. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Um. Ooh, so uh it's time for letters to the editor. Did you have anything, E? For letters to the editor? No. I have something. Yeah. I wanted to thank Brooklyn Public Library, sent me a zine that children made called the Genderful Zine. It is attached to their transgender programming. Uh their program was called Genderful: Exploring Gender Through Art. Hmm. Um, it looks really cool. It was like a really cool public programming. Uh, and so I got to look at this zine that um, kids made. It is really wonderful. There's like a at the end, it's, it starts with gender is over if you want it. <laughs> <laughs> That's really cute. <laughs> um, at the end, there's a little ghost at the very end. And it goes through a few pages and it says, hi, it's OK if it takes a while. And it made me cry so hard. Aww. <laughs> yeah. So I wanted to thank uh Lee Hurwitz. Hello. I know Lee listens. Thank you so much for sharing that with me. Very cool. Uh I wanna say thanks to the downtown boys for their song Wave of History. It's our intro and outro. It's off their album, Full Communism. Um you can buy it at their band camp. Do you want to talk about our website?
1: Yeah. So uh, you can find us online at drawingadialogue.com, which is part of comicarted.com, which is Kathy's very wonderful uh, art education website. Oh, thank you. Stop. Um, <laughs> you can also find all of the citations for our podcast on drawingadialogue.com. You can follow me on, well, you can follow, you can follow the podcast on Twitter at drawadialogue and you can follow me at E-H-E-T-J-A-E-H-E-C-H-E-C-H-E-C-H-E-C-H-E-C-H-E-C-H-E-C-H-E-C-H-E-C-H-E-C-H-E-C-H-E-C-H-E-C-H-E-C-H-E-C-H-E-C-H-E-C-H-E-C
0: and you can follow me at Kathy G John. Cool. Uh so what are you reading, E?
1: Um, so I'm reading Children of the Sea by uh Daisuke Igarashi. Um, I'm on the first volume. It is a really good manga about sort of the relationship, like this girl, this sort of like rowdy girl who <laughs> like uh-huh. kind of has like a like a little bit of like a, she's like has a, a little bit of like um i don't want to say an attitude but she's like kind of rowdy and rambunctious and i like her a lot and um she like meets these two boys that uh were raised by dugongs um Ooh. in the sea cool. And like she has a weird relationship with the ocean, the sea, and they have the same relationship as she does with the sea. And so they kind of like, I haven't finished it yet, but it's sort of like about them. And it's really beautiful right. and good. Um, what are you reading, Kathy?
0: Um, so it's been a while since we recorded E, and I've read so much. Show so, uh. off. <laughs> um, I really wanted to read, so I, f- I read Barkskins by Annie Prohl. Mm-hmm. And if you don't know Annie Pearl, she wrote the short story Brokeback Mountain um, that, made, that was made into a movie a few, few years ago. So Barkskins is her 700 page fiction novel about 300 years of the colonization of North America, mm. specifically sort of going up into French Canada and down to New England area. So that sort of coastal region. And it sort of talks about logging. It's all about the loggers, and it sort of follows the forestry industry and sort of the people who are on the ground of logging and axemen and up to the people who owned the corporations who sold the lumber and made all the money based off of it. And it had a lot to do with the indigenous peoples who lived there um, and how they were oppressed and murdered and their histories and cultures were stolen. Um, And it was fantastic. Um, So I wanted to read more. She talks a lot about the Mi'kmaq First Nations peoples. And so I wanted to read work by a Mi'kmaq artist. So I started reading poetry by Rita Mm Joe, who was also fantastic. Um, And then I was talking to a friend about the book And so she recommended Sherman Alexie, who is a Native American author. He's, like, on the other side. He's on the West Coast. So I've been reading short stories by him um, obsessively. (laughs) So I'm obsessed with uh, Pearl, Joe, and Alexie.
1: (laughs) Nice. That all sounds very cool.
0: So uh, farewell to our intrepid volunteers. Thanks for listening. Yeah, thank you. Bye.